The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Can you hear me? Can you? Ah, yeah. I kind of feel like continuing just to meditate with you. (laughs) Yeah, so the topic... um, I shouldn't start with meditation. I can't talk after that. I just feel like going on and on. (laughs) Come on. Get into it. They want you to talk. Go. Okay. So, um, the topic I, I would like to discuss with you today is this whole thing about how do we balance our own practice with our concern for others. What is the value to be given to these two aspects and how do we interrelate them? And for that I'm basing myself mainly on uh, the simile of the acrobat. And so I am using this topic also to introduce you, to give you a little flavor of my main academic uh, work, which is the comparative study of early discourses. Um, Early discourses means... um, we have the discourses in Pali, which, which you are probably familiar, but these discourses also have, uh, from a different transmission lineage, we have them in Chinese, the Chinese Agamas. And, and besides these Chinese Agamas, in several cases we also have some Sanskrit fragments and at times also versions in Tibetan. And... Uh, what my main academic work is to compare these different versions because they come from different transmission lineages to find the differences and the similarities between them because it is this type of academic comparative study which gives us access to the very earliest stages of Buddhist literature. This is the type of text the only type of text actually that can make a real claim of being going back all the way to the Buddha besides the rules in the Vinaya and so to give you a little flavor of that we we, we look at this acrobat simile in the different versions don't worry I'm not giving you the Chinese or the Tibetan we have it all in English and after that in in the second topic we'll look at the significance of this simile In the third, we look at some other similes. And then finally, I try to relate that to mindfulness practice. So uh, in the case of this acrobat simile, we have uh, three different versions. One is the Siddhika Sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya. Then we have a Chinese parallel in the Samyukta Agama. And then we have a third one. This is in the Mula Savastivada Vinaya. We have a full version in the Chinese translation of this in the Baisajjavastu and also a short quote in the Tibetan. 
The third one we'll leave it out for the time being because number two and number three belong to the same school. They are both Mula Savastivada. We just look at the discourse version, number one, the Theravada version, and number two, the Mula Savastivada version. So what I've done is, I'm always giving you the text, first the Pali version in italics, and then the Chinese version in normal script. So we just read through this and then we talk about it. I just give you time to read. So it's basically the same text we have here. On top you have the Pali version, below you have the Chinese. And one noticeable difference we find is about the location. In the Pali version, uh, the town of Sedeka is located among the Sumbhas. In the Chinese version, we are told it's among the Kosalans. And we also get the additional information that it was on an Indian rosewood grove. This is very typical, what we get in comparative studies, that there are differences about locations. And it kind of shows that for those who transmit the discourse, what was really important for them was the actual message given. And whether it took place in San Jose or in San Francisco, that was not really so important for them. So sometimes we very often get these different differences in the locations. So here's the next part. I think you're already getting a little bit of this feeling of how close they are, but still there are these slight little differences somehow. We are dealing with an oral transmission. At the old times there were no, no computers, no books, no nothing. If we would be at the Buddhist time and I were giving you a talk, then anything you can take with you is just what you can keep in your mind. And uh, Buddhist monks were not trained like the Vedic reciters, they tried their very best to pass the message on, but the slight changes are almost unavoidable. In the Pali version, we get the name of this apprentice, Meda Katalika, and the feminine ending makes it quite clear that this should be a lady. The Pali commentary then gets into a very strange argument trying to change her into a male, which I do not find very convincing. Yeah, that's the main difference here, I think. This whole part is not found in the Chinese. We only have the Pali. This is also something we get often that somehow one version is somewhat more detailed than the other. 
The only thing that I don't really understand is if they have something to discuss, why she already gets up on his shoulders. <laughs> it's a little bit uncomfortable to discuss, I think. <laughs> yeah. But it's not a major difference. It's just that we get a little bit more detailed description on how the discussion between the two starts. Again, the formulation is slightly different, but we get this basic thing that the teacher says to the apprentice or the assistant, I look after you, you look after me. In this way, we can do our acrobat display in a nice way, and we get uh, whatever people then, I assume people would be standing around and then throwing coins or whatever. This part really strikes me. No, teacher, you're getting it wrong. basic point our Medakatalika is making is that not, I'm not going to look after you, you're not going to look after me, but each of us is looking after himself, after herself. That's the way to do it. This is the part that got me interested into this sutta. I mean, there's one difference that uh, in the Pali version, the Buddha is the speaker, and in the Chinese version, it's the teacher. But there's a basic difference in evaluation here. The Buddha agrees that the apprentice is right and the teacher is wrong. But in the Chinese version, the teacher says, yes, you're right, but actually that was what I was saying all along. <laughs> and I really like that. We'll, we'll come back to that later.
So here we notice that uh, Pali version already brings in the my translation of Satipatthana, establishments of mindfulness. The Chinese version brings them in later, so it's not a difference in meaning, it's just a difference in emphasis. And both give us this message that this protection of oneself and protection of others is in some way interrelated. If I look after myself, I look after, I thereby look after others. If I look after others, I thereby look after myself. We'll discuss that later, what that could mean. In the Pali version, we are not really told what it is that is to be pursued and developed and cultivated. I think it's Asivanaya Bhavanaya Bahulikamina. And fortunately, the Chinese version spells out the obvious is the mind. And in the Chinese version, there seems to be a loss of text there. I've, but I've put in square brackets there, it's not found. And this is a very normal, it's a typical way of teaching we find in the suttas. There's always this question like, how is this or what is this? Then we get it explained and then there's this final saying, this is what it is. So my emendation uh, there is, is quite safe and it just seems to be a loss of text there in the Chinese. And the Chinese also mentions the, the attaining of realization. This explains us how, by protecting others, we protect ourselves. And the basic themes are similar, but what I really like in the Chinese version is this gift. The underlying Indic term would be dana, a dana of fearlessness, a dana of non-violence, a dana of harmlessness.
Yes, so we, again, we get the basic message is the same. Whether I'm concerned with myself, I'm concerned with others, the key point is mindfulness practice. And in the Pali version, we again get this statement that protecting oneself one protects others, protecting others one protects oneself, which we don't have in the Chinese. And my translation of the Chinese is very literal. It's true, the four spheres of mindfulness, but the meaning is the same as Satipatthana or Smriti Upasthana. And the Pali doesn't have a conclusion, it just stops there, while the Chinese version has the normal conclusion we always have at the end of the discourse, the Buddha spoke like this and the monks were usually happy about what they heard. Yeah, there's one exception there. I think it's Mula Pariyaya, so that the first in Majjhima they were not happy about what they heard. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> yeah. I hope that was not too boring, but I just wanted us to go into this discourse for you to get this feeling of what this academic study of early Buddhism is about, to get a feeling also for the, the slight differences. But what I personally found in my studies, I have given the book to Gil as a fat book, I studied the whole of the Majjhima in the right of all of its power. What really strikes me most are actually the similarities how close they are. The basic message is so similar. So we can't latch onto the form, but the content is still there. So now we want to look at the significance of this acrobat simile. Yeah, there's somebody in India and he is doing acrobacy. And here we have two ladies in the West. The Chinese are particularly famous for their abilities in acrobacy. It's a small thing I would like you to notice. You see those strings? Why do they have that strings there? Exactly. Exactly. That's a very important point for our understanding of the acrobat simile. They need those strings to keep the poles in place because as these guys are moving up and down and around, the poles will otherwise be moving around. Just keep that in mind when we discuss the simile. This is from a 5th century tomb in China. We do not know if there was any connection between this and the Indian acrobats, but it just fits the acrobat simile so well that I want you to see it. So what's the point of this simile? As we already discovered, like this, this, this strings there with the Chinese, there's a problem of keeping, keeping the pole in place. So if I have, uh, have nothing better than this, right, give me the stick right. If I'm the person at the bottom and on top somebody is moving all the time, then what do I have to do? I always have to balance him out, no? I have to keep my own center, and as soon as the fellow up there is going like this, if I go, don't do anything, it'll fall, so I have to go and keep it in place. And as you move him there, I have to go and keep it in place. And the person at the bottom 
what she has is actually never stable because that fellow below is all the time moving around, no? So there's this, this, this constant interplay between the two. And the whole situation will only work when both of us are really keeping precisely our center, totally centered, always aware of the slightest adjustment. As I'm up there doing my acrobacy, I feel, whoop, he's moving a little bit there, so I better do like this, and whoop, whoop. And the one below, the whole time they need to interact in order to continue doing it. And for doing that, the most important thing, what they need is what? Keep their own center, no? If I'm just looking at the fellow out there and I'm not aware of my own center, the whole thing will collapse. If the one on top is just looking at the, hey, what's he doing there again, then it'll fall off. So keeping the own center is really the central thing. And when the teacher says, I look after you, and you look after me, why is he saying that? The, the teacher is in a safe place, no? If something goes wrong, it's the one on top that falls down. So he says, really, I'm, I'm really going to make care that you don't fall down and... Uh, you also take care that you don't fall on my head, maybe. <laughs> but then we get this reply by the student, which I told you that I found so interesting. The way the teacher had formulated the whole thing sounded like not that the student feels like, hey, but for this whole thing to work, I have to first keep my own center. You've got to keep your own center. If we're too much concerned about each other, that won't work. That's a very important point she's making here for us. If we don't keep our own center, how are we going to help others? Isn't it? Yeah, just just again for you. And then this uh, remarkable difference in evaluation where in one we are told the Buddha approves and we get the impression that the apprentice knows it better than the teacher, which is a little bit surprising because if they're introduced as the teacher and the apprentice, we would kind of expect the teacher knows the stuff better than the student. And this is what always struck me about this simile when I was reading the Pali version. And I uh, here, I mean, I, I, I feel more comfortable with the Chinese. I, it, it, it just, from the whole logic, it, it seems more, more meaningful, this, this part, that the teacher says, yes, you're right, we have to protect ourselves, but this is what I all the time had in mind anyway. But and as far as interpretation is concerned, the basic message we get is the same. It doesn't change the meaning of the acrobat simile itself, but to my personal feeling, it just runs much more smoothly. At this point, I want to briefly stop and see if there's any questions or comments on this acrobat simile, because that is what I had in mind on this particular simile. And after that, we're going to look at some other similes, and there I also need your 
cooperation to interpret these. I have been talking for quite some time now, and it would be nice if we become a little bit more interactive. That's actually the way I like to. I usually, when I go somewhere to give talks, the idea is always like, what can I learn today from you? And so it's very lovely. Yes, please, lady. Can you speak to fearlessness and what is meant by that word in that uh, sutta? The gift of fearlessness, we give the gift of fearlessness, for example, if we keep precepts, then I am giving other beings that safety that I'm not going to kill them, I'm not going to steal from them, I'm not going to lie to them. Or like as a monk, any woman that interrelates with me, she gets that grant, this man is not going to be after you. It really eases the relationship. There's not this kind of tension below that we don't know what's going to be happening. And that is a real gift, actually. It makes relationships very beautiful. Yeah, those who have the mic have to do a lot of jogging when they are doing with me. Can't help it. Um, this sutta that you just read seems to um, perhaps explain uh, principles of karma. Mm-hmm. If if um, if I lose my center, I might do things that are harmful or speak unskillfully. Mm-hmm. And if you aren't centered, then then I'll be throwing you off, pushing mm-hmm. your buttons, mm-hmm. and um, and you might get angry back at me and it goes back and forth back and forth mm. but if I can keep my center um, I'll be careful in my speech and yep. you'll f- yep. and you'll feel safe with me and yeah. that'll calm everything down and yeah. and you'll be more centered as a result yeah very nice thank you so you already learned something let me just digest that very beautiful I hadn't thought of it actually well done there was somebody up here and then I come to you It's clear to me that this uh, relates to our relationship with other people. And um, uh, is, it, is it possible, uh, it must happen sometimes, that you are trying to honestly relate to another person. Mm-hmm. And it appears to me that I, so suppose I'm on the bottom, I try to be self-centered. But for whatever reason, it appears to me that the other person is going to fall, do things, uh, maybe not keeping that person center, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, can you say something about uh, if, if, if the acrobat comes upon someone who he or she just can't work with because it's not working? <laughs> Then what do we do? That's my question. I give the question to you. (laughs) Anybody can comment on this? What do we do with somebody who can't do acrobacy with us, who can't keep the center? Just only replies to this for now, please. One, two, three. The lady? Yes, please. Ah, right. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, actually, it sort of relates to a question, too, is I sort of read the difference in how to protect yourself and how to protect others as a difference in a practice of wisdom or mindfulness within oneself. That's the cultivating, developing, attaining realization. Mm -hmm. And a compassion practice toward others. Mm -hmm. Just keeping the precepts, mm -hmm. patience, mm -hmm. harmlessness. Mm. And so if someone isn't a very good acrobat, we have to be patient and we have to be compassionate. Mm. Somebody at the back there. Thank you. That's good. <laughs> well, what comes to mind for me is the uh, notion of mindfulness in everyday living, and that um, we can practice mindfulness in a retreat a lot easier, right. and maintain that mindfulness in everyday life. We're encountering all sorts of yeah. variations. Yeah, it's much more challenging, isn't it? Yes. But that's the testing ground. That's true. That's the testing ground. The that's nice blessing out on the retreat is not the only way to bring us forward. We have to test it out in everyday practice. And there we see where we really stand. Thank you so much. At the back there, the lady. Oh, she's going to get two mics. <laughs> I only, I don't need any really, but... Um, I was thinking of a question that I had when you asked your question, sorry, about um, protecting the mind, and I couldn't imagine what that meant. Hmm. And I can imagine protecting my body, but then to think of protecting the mind, I couldn't imagine how to do that. And then when you asked your question, I thought, oh, maybe that's the answer to his question. Mm-hmm. That can I protect my mind in a situation like that by saying, oh well, mm -hmm. <laughs> they're not a good acrobat, yeah. and not uh, extend, overextend, lose my own balance. That's uh -huh. how I protect. I'm not sure, but... It's a very good beginning. We will come back to the protection thing, but it's a very good beginning you made there. And I, I really like the point of, 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 of making sure that I don't lose my own balance. So we have the patience thing, definitely. But there's also the point of up to what point I can be patient without losing my own center. Very good. Yes? The mic is coming from back side. So along those lines, you know, the, for me, I keep coming back to the difference of positions with the acrobat and the teacher who's holding mm -hmm. the acrobat. And as you demonstrated, the teacher is actually in constant response exactly. to the acrobat. And so in a way, when she says, oh, you've got it all wrong, we have to focus on ourselves, well, that's really her role as the person kind of leading the movement, whereas mm -hmm. he mm -hmm. says, oh, yeah, that's what I meant all along, even though originally he sounded like he was just talking about him protecting her, mm -hmm. but he's actually the one in response to her constantly. Mm -hmm. So it mm -hmm. seems, even though it's a symbiotic relationship, yeah. 
they're in very different positions. Right. And so then they kind of approach it in a different way as well. Right, right. Very good point. I was kind of thinking about the same ideas, but slightly different perspective. The teacher says, this is correct and is also the meaning of what I said. And yet if we look at it literally, it's not at all what he said. He, he said one thing, you look after me and I'll look after you. And she said, no, I look after myself and you look after mm-hmm. yourself. So they're not the same. So the Chinese version is kind of interesting. Is that an odd translation, or what does that mean? Or is the teacher just trying to be right because he's the teacher? No, yeah, that's what I said. No, no, no. No, no, no. So my thought was, when I was watching you mm-hmm. kind of move this around and talking about the teacher's balance and the acrobat's balance as two mm-hmm. separate things, it also occurs to me that there's really only one balance mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Both of them have to create it. Yeah. So the idea of myself and yourself I protect myself, you protect yourself, or vice versa, mm-hmm. sort of loses meaning in the sense that mm-hmm. neither can simply have their own balance. Mm-hmm. They have to have a communal balance. Yeah. So, slightly different, I don't know. Yeah. But just to add to the Chinese, I think the teacher is just saying that in order for me to protect you, I anyway have to keep my own balance. This is the meaning of what I said. That is, that is the... When the teacher says, let me just go back to the. Where is that? Yeah, this, this, the, the lower one, when he says, as you said, we'll take care to protect ourselves, this is correct. And this is also the meaning of what I said. What he means with that is, it's obvious because I have to be centered myself in order to be able to protect you. That is the way how I read the Chinese. The, the point you make is perfectly fine that in the end, whether it's me or the other, there's this symbiotic relationship, there's this one balance. But uh, the, the Chinese is not odd, it makes a lot of sense. The Chinese is not odd, it makes a lot of sense. I can't, in this acrobat <coughs> situation, I cannot look after the other without looking after myself. The teacher thinks that this is implicit in the whole situation. That's the point the Chinese makes. But we don't know. From what the teacher originally said, we can only add that implicitness it to that statement. It comes out of the logic of the simile quite clearly. That's the way I read it. Okay. <laughs> um. Just on that point, it strikes me that the teacher has described the, the sort of the end goal, and then the student is kind of amplifying their understanding of how yeah. they need to go about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. At the back here. It, it feels to me that. Uh, an important consideration is before the student climbs up the pole, there has to be some sort of understanding of limitations of oneself, of one's own fears of climbing up the pole, one's own ability mm. to balance on the pole, to hold the pole, to develop that trust, to have that communication before we even start to get to that level. Um, 
Thank you. There was somebody just close by, I think. No? Any more comments on the acrobat simile, or are we ready? Yes, please. Over here. I'm curious about the symbolism of the pole itself. Uh huh. Any comment? Well, it connects them, so uh -huh. it's, it's critical. Yeah. So they have to be very careful about the substance of it. Yeah. And choosing it. Yeah. So that it supports them, yet it's flexible enough. Mm. No, very good, very good. A any more ideas about the pole? It's so lovely when you all say something and slowly the thing becomes richer and richer and richer. Here and then there. So in, in my comment I talked about relating to someone and of course the relationship occurs mainly through communication mm -hmm. and uh, maybe this poll is that communication uh -huh. that we have to pick out a good means of communication mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're going to have a lousy relationship. Yeah. Can the mic move down to her? Or is there some other mic close by? This is a little bit away from the whole bit. I'm wondering about the whole this simile in, in general. Uh, when I think about acrobats, I think about the training that an acrobat mm -hmm. would need to have. And so when using a simile as a tool like this, and acrobats are watched by an audience, so is this presented as a tool, um, you know, like, do we, as a tool, imagine ourselves all as possible acrobats in mindfulness, or is this, do you know, it seems so specialized, an acrobat mm -hmm. trains their whole entire life. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering about that whole perspective of the simile of, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of separate from... Yeah. If we're a room full of people right here, how many of us are an acrobat here in terms of mindfulness like that? Just curious yeah. about that. Any comments on that? I thought that's quite interesting. The idea of there's a skill that needs to be developed. Uh. Response, I go back to what I noticed, the pole might be the communication. And what you're saying is the acrobats need to train, but we need to train ourselves uh -huh. in communication. Boy, I'm, I'm over 70, and I still fall down in ways that I communicate with people. So, my, you know, my training is not ended. So as communicators and, peop and ones who relate to another, we need to pay attention all our lives to training for yeah, I like that training, training and mindfulness. That's a skill. And it's beautiful to see somebody mindfully interrelating with someone else, no? Almost like acrobacy. Yes, please? We, we may not climb poles, but I'm sure we all walk tightropes. <laughs> 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 yeah, indeed. 
Yes, please. I was just thinking that we are we are always all in in relation in you know in in relation. Yeah. We exist in relationships, yeah. so it's not a specialized situation to yeah. to be. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's very interesting because uh, like if we look at the historical context in ancient India, there was this complete withdrawal, and the Buddha did not choose that way. He emphasized seclusion a lot. But he made it a rule that the monks have to go out for their food. They're not allowed to keep overnight because he wanted that interaction, apparently. And this is one typical characteristic of the early Buddhist community, this continuous interaction. And if you put it side by side with the fact that mindfulness is really typically Buddhist in the ancient Indian setting, we have a very nice connection there. So thank you for that comment. Yes, please. Um, I have a particular... um appreciation for this story because I'm not an acrobat but I dance mm-hmm. and to be lifted which I have very little experience with but the little experience I have you need to hold yourself in such a way that you, you feel like the person on the bottom is doing all the work but the person on top has to as well I can't follow you I'm sorry you were a little fast for me to when, when you're being lifted yes. when you dance yes the person being lifted yes. also has to hold themselves in such a way to make it easier for the person on yeah, the bottom. Yeah, yeah, so it yeah. truly, truly is. It's not just the person on the bottom doing all the work. And also, yeah. I can't remember if this was introduced in the, in the text, but there's a huge element of trust. Yeah. Not only yeah. for the person being lifted, but for the person lifting, because right. if the person on top doesn't do, doesn't hold themselves in such a way and, right. and hold on to that center, yeah. then you both fall down. Yeah. Thank you for sharing this. Yeah, the element of trust is very beautiful. Thank you. So when the pole is vertical, um, the two people are in balance, but that may not last. Uh, And the person on bottom has no idea which way the Mm -hmm. acrobat on top may start to fall, right, left, forward, back. and, and so, uh, and when the person does start to lean, the person on the bottom has to apply corrective measures very yes. quickly. Yes. Um, so you have to be very alert. So this perhaps could relate to uh, having a very good mindfulness practice. Exactly. They both have to be quite mindful. And the person below has to feel the pole like an extension of its, his own center. And so that immediately it starts to move a little bit. Already I feel, oops, I'm out of center and I'm balancing it out again. Because if I wait for too long, it'll be too late. I won't be able to catch it anymore. Yeah, very nice. Where? No? (coughs) One, two. Uh, What came to my mind was... um a Thich Han, you know, he, he would say, well, this is like this because that is like that. Mm-hmm. And so when there's this, there's, there's that as an opposing reaction immediately. Mm-hmm. And that everything we think, say, do, and feel has an immediate response upon 
our own organism and the organisms that are surrounding us. And it goes on in an infinite way. We don't really know how much that can can go into dependent co-arising, all these factors. Yeah, that's so what she, if I understand her right, what she's drawing our attention to is that this whole interaction is a very clear demonstration of conditionality, dependent arising, the interaction of the two. Thank you very much. The gentleman at the back. Can we pass on the mic? There's an imbalance in, in the risk between the two um, acrobats. Um, the one on the top uh, can hurt himself or herself more. Yes. Um, and that increases the responsibility of the one below. Yes. There's an imbalance of responsibility as well. Yes. Um, and there is when, say, when we both when we succeed, we both do well. But when we do not succeed, perhaps one pays more than the other. Yeah. But still, the responsibility is... Um, it, it somehow tells me that um, there's more responsibility with the person who has the more ability, more, more sense who's more centered. Mm-hmm. That is, if, if all of us don't come to become an acrobat, or, or nobody probably does become an acrobat of equal level, if there are two acrobats, yeah. they're, they're, at least to begin with, they're not at the same level. In this case, it's a teacher in the yeah. and the There's a point where it may be a situation like this, that, that one of them is centered, the other is not. They still have to work together. Yeah. And there is a, so the response may be, the right response is, okay, I am centered. Yeah. I have the ability and the other person does not. So I need to, so I the approach maybe that I need to be more of a, take the approach of a teacher, more patient. Mm. And, and, and more alertness probably, because mm-hmm. I have to protect two of us. Yeah. Um, and also the question of well, when maybe you know when they when they go, go to the soleil or something, um, when they practice, I'm sure they had a safety net underneath. <laughs> That's like being on retreat, then, no? <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, no, that's very good. And we can imagine that safety net like being on retreat. And then when we're out of retreat, the safety net is gone. So now it's really a job of keeping balance. Very nice. I wonder if, um, I wonder if part of the mindfulness isn't being aware of whether you're in the role of the base holding the pole mm-hmm. or whether you're in the role of the acrobat. Mm-hmm. And I mean for lack of a better word, the power um, that you hold in that sort of relationship or situation. Um, And then, you know, how you proceed. Hmm. The other thing is the pull metaphor I really like, 
but I keep getting stuck with the fact that in the acrobat scenario, it's a voluntary <laughs> sort of volitional interaction that like mm-hmm. two consenting adults are sort of agreeing to mm-hmm. put their trust and undertake the action, but in real life, that's often not the case. But can we still apply the same principles? I think that's when you go back to figuring out then, okay, what role am I playing in this relationship if it's sort of coming on sudden or this interaction? Mm -hmm. And then you can proceed with your mindfulness in terms of how you... It's all coming around. Yeah, (laughs) very nice. Very nice. Yeah, so then we go with some other similes. There's now, I'm briefly presenting the other similes on this theme of mindfulness and protection. So one is just, this is just a bare statement that mindfulness is the one factor to protect the mind. So we're coming back to this topic of protection of the mind that somebody mentioned before, I don't remember. The other one describes mindfulness as a careful charioteer, a careful driver, we would say. And then there is mindfulness as the gatekeeper of a town. And this occurs twice. Two different images. One is it's a border town. And this border town has different things. It has an army, it has weapons, it has provisions all kind of things that help to keep out enemies. And within this context, mindfulness is the gatekeeper. It's the one that knows who is allowed inside the town and those who should not enter the town. And then there's another setting. It's again the gatekeeper of the town, but there are two messengers and they want to know the way to the king in the town. And so the gatekeeper has to tell them the fast way to the king and the two messengers are tranquility and insight and the king of the town you probably guess it nirvana two different settings one more on on the, on the, on the general level of dealing with sense restraint perhaps the other one more on this kind of guiding role of mindfulness in the progress towards realization. So now I've thrown these three similes at you and I would like to know which one of these similes speaks to you? What could it mean for you? What is not unclear about it perhaps? Any comments or ideas about these similes? And also, that how, how does mindfulness protect the mind? We had that question before. The ball is with you. The first that comes to mind for me is the gatekeeper of a town mm-hmm. and in relation especially to uh, the senses. Mm-hmm. So how do we protect the senses? Um, I, I think that's very much appreciated when we are in retreat and we, when we come mm-hmm. out 
and then we're bombarded uh, mm-hmm. by sounds and, and sights and smells and um, you know how do we balance how do we know how to take care yeah. of that um, and then in a more more subtle it's of course the thoughts you know what trains of thoughts mm. do we allow to do we sp- allow to spin in the mind right such a crucial question no? thank you so much the lady here here in front um, I relate more to the charioteer because of the uh, metaphor of the senses as the horses and um, I think also because of the movement in that mm-hmm. is more to me uh, it just uh, makes uh, it just is it's the movement of the chariot and the senses versus a town and uh, military and gates is uh, yeah what it is yeah it's a setting we are not so happy with <laughs> The careful charity, all of you have been driving here by car can quickly relate to. <laughs> you must all have been mindful because you came in without an accident. <laughs> yeah. Here, somebody up there. So, um, the gatekeeper speaks to me as well. <clears throat> the choice, and you can choose who comes into the town. Uh-huh. So that's the choice to react or to sit with something that happens. Yes. So I have that ability to say, like, I can choose either to react to this or I can sit with it and figure out what's really happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that which allows me to choose is mindfulness. Which is also protection as well. Yeah, exactly. You're slowly getting a feeling for that protection thing now. Very good. Any other comments? please. I was thinking about the first one, the factor to protect the mind. Mm -hmm. And I've been mm, curious about in kind of modern day Buddhist circles, there's often a talk about the heart. And I don't know whether this could also be said as a factor to protect the heart or not. It's chitta, so it's the heart-mind chitta. Okay. Chinese translation with the heart radical, actually. Okay. Well, I think I experience heart and mind maybe not as one. You're talking physical heart or? Um, We have three different words for mind in Pali, mano, chitta, and vijnana, and they have slightly different nuances. Right. Well, I, th- I often think of the mind as being where the cognition goes on, where what kind of thoughts and intellectualization uh-uh. and stories and that, and maybe the heart being more of the place of um, caring and connection, uh, vulnerability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it seems like the awareness, it doesn't all seem one, at least in my experience. Yes, so, so in, 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 uh, in early Buddhism, we distinguish between three types of mind. And one is mano, 
And that is basically the, sometimes these are mentioned as near synonyms, so they are just shades of different meanings. But Manu gives you this feeling of intellectual reflection. And it's one of the six sense doors. Then we have vijnana, consciousness. And consciousness has different roles. It's sometimes it's one of the five aggregates. Sometimes it stands for the whole of the mind, that which is reborn. And it is always a conscious of something. And then we have chitta. And that is the heart mind in the sense of chitta is probably the term closest to what in English we would call emotion. And it is that which also we contemplate in mindfulness. The third satipatthana is about chitta, nupassana, contemplation of the mind. So it has that caring kind of thing, but it also has the negative emotions. None of these terms is in itself uh, has a value that this is only wholesome or this is only unwholesome. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like looking at the same phenomena from three different perspectives. The terminology throws three spotlights on different aspects of our mental being. And okay. here the, the word is chetasa, which corresponds to chitta. Oh, okay. Yeah, because the heart mind. When I think about what, what do I actually protect, I think it's, it's probably closer to um, protecting chitta. Yeah. Rather yeah. than protecting mono. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Thank you. I became aware of this uh, last week, um, a story about a uh, 25-year-old woman who was leading an expedition of uh, horseback riders, eight eight riders, into the wilderness in Montana this summer. And um, uh, the um, there was an attack by a, a grizzly bear who was um, initially chasing a deer but then focused its attention on uh, an eight-year-old boy who was on, a smallest, on the smallest horse to attack for food because there was no, the berries hadn't ripened yet and the bears were all looking for food in this area. And uh, the, the leader of the, of the uh, group um, uh, charged the bear. She, all the horses had turned around to go back to the they were running away from the bear, basically. They, the riders lost control of their horses, and they were all going to run back to the camp, to the corral. Um, but this one, the leader of the group, she turned her horse around and charged the bear three times, and uh, eventually the bear left. Um, but anyway, that was just some, a kind of a literal example that this reminds me of, of mindfulness and... Uh, Thank you for sharing this. It kind of goes with the last two two, um, similes. Thank you for sharing this story. Dramatic, no? Any other? So how does mindfulness protect the mind? I don't understand that. Can anybody explain? (laughs) Yes, please. Ah, somebody there, I'm sorry. For the the gatekeeper of the town, um, that comes to mind for me that this is a a two-way process. Normally, we're 
loading things into the town, but we're concerned about what's leaving the town and um, make, you know, looking at our resources, looking at uh, safety of who's going out and uh, timing of things, when, when we need to be secure, mm. when we don't need to be secure, um, maybe when we're allowing everyone in for a festival. Mm. <laughs> Thank you. Here in front, please. My idea of how mindfulness protects the mind is, is this. Suppose you're angry and you're about to say something that expresses that anger. Uh, if you're very mindful, your mind can slow down enough that you can, as you're starting to become angry and as you're starting to talk, you can notice the contraction. Exactly. And then, if you're aware that Oh, contraction means anger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you know that much, uh, you can catch yourself. Exactly. If I don't know I'm getting angry, what can I do about it? That's the point. Thank you. Have we exhausted the beauties of these similes, or are you still able to make some comment, <coughs> question on them? Yes, please, and then there. A lot of my own um, dukkha, but um, at one point I felt like I was back in graduate school and listening to everybody's opinion about what one particular simile meant, and I was wondering about um, can we take similes too far? Um, too far isn't well. I don't know. I'm, I'm finding myself a little bit like a pole is a pole. The pole is not the relationship. What What is this really all about? And, you know, it was important for me, as you explain things, that I didn't realize I didn't know as much about the physical act of that particular kind of acrobatics. But um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you have any comment on that or... Just tell me to go practice more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely going to tell you that anyway, whatever you say. <laughs> I, 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 I understand what you're saying, and there is sometimes a tendency to overinterpret. And uh, there's, there's, for example, there's one teacher in, in, in Sri Lanka, and he, he, he goes into all kinds of different stories. Like there's a story of a, of, of a woman who has lost her husband and now she's in the middle of the river and she has one child on one side, child on the other side. And so he gets into a whole kind of thing that this means the aggregate and this is grasping and all that. And I think that's really besides the point because the story is meant as a historical record. But these are similes. They're explicitly introduced as similes and they are meant to stimulate us to develop inner images. This is a world of oral orality. There are no pictures. And the Buddha, the, the early discourses work a lot with pictures and they want us to interpret, to, to find, to give a meaning that makes this image come alive in us. So I think it's perfectly fine to interpret the pole as a relationship. Whether this was originally meant with the simile or not is not really the question. 
But as long as it helps us to understand the whole thing, I think that's okay. And allowing ourselves that freedom to work with these images can be very, very powerful, especially in practice, as you are talking about practicing more. I find sometimes in deeper practice, there's not really the place for starting to think out things. But these images that do not call up any kind of concepts can inform my practice of the proper direction to take. It's very powerful. Hmm. There was a lady here. Oh, yeah, she's already getting the mic. Thank you. Um, as you were going over the list, um, I realized that I have my own set of similes. And, um, and I assume that's probably the same for everyone, that we each come up with our own imagery of, that reflect our experience of what it's like to you know, practice being mindful. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's a very domestic simile. It's about cleaning house, keeping my house clean, mm-hmm. uh, and sweeping and sweeping, and there's always new new dust, and um, so it's a relentless um, work. Mm. Thank you for sharing that simile. Yes, so now we move from the similes to something is going wrong here, pushing the wrong button here. Okay, this is from Brennan Ponica. So he, he compares this. There are these reflex moments like when we, we lose balance, we quickly do something to, to catch our balance again. And he compares that to, with bare attention, he's talking about sati, he's talking about mindfulness. That in the mental realm, mindfulness gives us that, 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 that ability to feel that we have to catch our balance again. And he speaks of nonviolence. Mindfulness is something that doesn't interfere with things. It sits back and allows things to unfold for us to see and understand. And it is that which enables us, we have for the example of anger, to actually know what's happening, which is the very basis for us to be able to skillfully deal with any situation in daily life. Bear attention is just his way of describing mindfulness. In the word bear, I can understand the attention for mindfulness. He's just making an emphasis on, on, on this aspect of mindfulness that, that, that just allows things in without immediately reacting on them.
So when Vajanaponika is telling us how by looking after ourselves, or in the acrobat simile by keeping our own balance, we are actually looking after the other. We make them this gift of fearlessness we were discussing earlier. Yes, please. Um, it's not self-protection, it's more self-control, is what is referred to here. It is self-control in the case we are about to do something unwholesome. You are perfectly right. Okay. He is telling us what the impact of somebody who is developing himself or herself, who is stopping all this craving and grasping. And I think you all will probably know what it means to be around people who are mindful, who don't crave, who don't grasp, how they inspire us, how they help us to diminish these negativities. They don't even have to do something directly towards us, just the way they are. If one very powerful monk in Sri Lanka, and we all think he's very highly attained, and one of my friends said, you know, it's enough to see the shadow when he moves. (laughs) Yeah, and I like this idea of a contagious disease. It really like, uh, it just keeps on and on and gets worse and worse. So this is all about how my self-cultivation in itself already contributes towards others. And now we come to the other aspect. Coming back to the acrobat simile, Pali version speaks of patience and harmlessness. And I mentioned that at that time already, the Chinese speaks of the gift, the dana of fearlessness, the dana of non-violation, the dawn of harmlessness. In uh, the traditional Buddhist country like Sri Lanka, uh, laity go to such extent to to prepare dana for us monks. I was uh, in the meditation center I was leading in Sri Lanka and sometimes we had this uh, invitation for monks to come for the meal and some of these lay people, they are there at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, they start preparing and cooking, just so that at 10 o'clock there's this whole great menu there. And so there's all this, 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 this devotion and there's this love that goes into all this preparation for this type of dana. 
And uh, for the type of dana that we are giving here, I mean, if I want to give you the dana of fearlessness, of non-violation, of harmlessness, I also have to do preparation. I have to clear my own mind. So giving that type of dana is of immediate benefit to myself. And the way it expresses itself is yeah, loving kindness and sympathy, empathy. We can get this very clear interrelation. We had this, you said that with the acrobat simile, that is basically, in the end, it's just one balance. No longer my balance or the other balance, it's just one balance. This is so important. This is so important. It is natural to reach out to others and wanting to help them, but we have to first tidy up our own house. Otherwise, it's not going to work. This beautiful simile in Salika Sutta. If you're sinking in the mud yourself, how are you going to pull out someone else? You have to stand on firm ground to be able to pull out the other. doesn't mean to walk away and let them sink. No, that's not the question. But that clear understanding, do I have enough firm ground under my feet to pull out someone else? Then start pulling out. Otherwise, we're just both going to be drowning. Please. Till I become perfect, it'll never happen. I didn't say that you have to become an arahant to help others. I just said enough firm ground that allows you to pull out another. I'm not an arahant still. I'm sitting here and talking to you instead of sitting at Gil's house and just doing my practice. So I am under the impression that I have enough firm ground under my feet. And now I come to the last topic. How does this relate to mindfulness practice itself? And there's this aspect of, uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta, we get this, uh, I call that refrain in my book, we get this instruction for each of the exercises. And we are told one of these is that any practice should be done internally, externally, and internally and externally. The interpretation of these terms is somewhat complex. I do not want to go into too much detail now unless you are asking for it. But my own understanding from what I can gather from the early discourses and also the early Abhidharma is that probably what was originally meant is myself and others. That seems to be the basic meaning behind that. And there's a, there's a very strong interrelation when we practice mindfulness because mindfulness is not only when we sit in meditation. So, so seeing how others relate to what I do, how, 
like like now I'm are you are you falling asleep are you are you aware I I need to have that awareness for me to keep that talk going on. At the same time, being mindful myself, what am I going to say next? Wait, I forgot it. That I also have to keep that in mind, and that is a continuous interrelationship. And we can also learn so much from others, how others react to situations. And I, there's the one, yeah, I, I tell you a little story about my, my own practice. I'm an anger type. I have a lot of, like, my main defilement is anger. And uh, before, yeah, a long time ago, <laughs> has changed. I'm actually a totally different person. You won't recognize me. And it's just because of meditation. But I was extremely angry and before. And when I started to meditate, this anger thing was really difficult because behind that anger, there was a feeling of righteousness. And there was one situation in Sri Lanka in a meditation center. And... Um, we were just meditating and the official hour of meditation was over but the rule was if people keep on sitting you leave them alone and there was one person uh, there was a route somebody had to clean up the hall and this person was not willing to wait because for some reason she wanted to do it right away and so she started to make a whole mess in the hall and I felt myself getting slowly like building up like she's not supposed to be doing that she's disturbing our practice and I was just about going to get really angry and somebody else was faster than me and also got angry. <laughs> and that person did exactly what I was about to do, this kind of... And it looked so stupid, you know. <laughs> it was such a foolish thing to do. And when I saw somebody else acting out what I was about to do, I suddenly realized what I'm doing every time I'm getting angry. And it was so helpful for me to realize that anger is just foolishness. And that really helped me to work with my anger. So that is a way of how observing externally can inform our own practice. It's just a little example. It's a continuous going forth and back. Those dreams that are in the world are held in check by mindfulness. And with that, I come to the conclusion of my talk. I thank you so much for all the beautiful comments you made, the contributions. And we have another 15 minutes time for any questions that you might want to ask. But I really enjoyed today with you. I've taken quite a number of new points, the dancer and so many other things. It's really lovely because, you see, if I just sit here in front and talk and talk and talk, I mean, what I'm talking about I already know. So, <laughs> so I'm going out with nothing. But when you contribute, when you say something, each of you has your own experience, your own perspective, your own idea. And I learn so much from that. And I go out and I'm really enriched by that. So I thank you very much for that. Any comments or questions you would like to ask? Yes, please. It's just a silly question. That last um, saying there just pushed my buttons because I've been asking the question about a fluid center versus a sticking to my center, and there it's saying the, the streams stand for the unwholesome, that which the unwholesome that carries us away. 
the craving okay. that carries us away. Because I'm thinking I don't want to control nature, allow it to flow through, come back, you know. <laughs> it's just a question of holding in check. So we are not, <clears throat> we are not, um, wait, yani sotani lokasming sati tisangni varanang panyaya tepitiyari. Those streams in the world, the desires, the craving, <coughs> are held in check by mindfulness, but they are cut off by wisdom. So mindfulness is not cutting off the stream. It's just keeping it within a boundary, but it's letting it, letting it flow. That's the context of the simile. <coughs> yes, please. <coughs> I I really appreciate the slide that before that one that you brought up and explained because uh, when I first discovered uh, Satipatthana Sutta, those two were really uh, brought up a lot of question on me. So. I even searched some monks in the San Jose area to go in and ask one of the Burmese monks that helped me explain uh, the way you just did. So um still remember the word in Pali, uh, Ajatama so, uh, Thank you very much for that. So, nice explanation. Thank you. I think um, what came for me is that um, how interconnected everything is mm. and the impermanency of everything. It's like I, you know, like uh, greed and hate can uh, uh, affect everybody. If I have it, it affects everybody. So it, there's mm. so much interconnectedness. Yeah. And in terms of uh, the the question how the mindfulness um, can you keep the mic a little bit in front protect of the mind I think that um, you know I, what I learned so much at the going to Vipassana going is how to rest the mind and I don't sometimes I think that every time that we are paying attention to our breathing and, and doing a sweep on mass we are Resting the mind and 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 the learning and uh, um, I think there's we get so much intoxicated with information and mm. and even the words. Sometimes I don't want to learn anything. I just want to go to the spaceness of feeling. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I just started to meditate and pay attention to how many. How how many breaths can I have without having any thoughts coming in? <laughs> and it's very interesting. And sometimes I just, it seems like to create a, you know, equanimity is like I, it's just to rest, mm. rest the mind from all the external, you know, and internal things yeah. that come in. So that's how I protect my mind. Yeah. It's beautiful resting the mind. Letting go of the outside world, and when the mind rests in itself, concentration develops, happiness comes. So, Honorable Sir, uh, you, had, you had mentioned about uh, 
three framework of uh, mindfulness uh, in in one of your previous lectures the three establishments of mindfulness uh, and uh, compared to the the fourfold yeah we are accustomed to yeah so can you talk about those three these are the three satipatthanas practiced by the buddha so they are specifically uh, associated with the buddha himself they are not the way we are taught to practice and that is his equanimity in relation to three different situations all of those who are there listen to him some listen some don't listen all of those who are there are not listening to what he teaches in each of these situations he is mindful clearly aware and equanimous so what are the three, the three? these are the three there there are three different situations everybody here listens those listens those don't listens nobody listens these are the three Yeah you're very nice you don't give me a chance for number 3 thank you <laughs> I'm coming to you have have you clarified that Okay so, the lady here Yeah I have a open question about mindfulness and wisdom and other factors so it seems you had a slide a few back that that the body makes these spontaneous balancing moves mm-hmm. and it seems to me you know the mind makes these spontaneous not taking up of you know harm, harmful subjects and so forth after a while but it seems that that's not really mindfulness and then i got back to wondering about the whole acrobat simile i mean it's really effort and wisdom wisdom and effort yeah. isn't it that makes the actual moves yeah. so the mindfulness part is the just just uh being present yeah so not being distracted somehow yeah. i i guess Yeah that's an important point with all this interest we have in mindfulness and the emphasis of mindfulness we should always understand mindfulness stands in the context of the eightfold noble path and there is the basis of sila which sometimes in modern applications of mindfulness is not really emphasized at least as much as I would like it to be emphasized and that's right effort sometimes something needs to be done very right and there's also that which comes after mindfulness the resting of the mind in concentration but the kind of spontaneous movement that you do in the in the balancing it seems to me is quite like wisdom just somehow knowing what to do it needs wisdom yeah but i think what benbanyana ponika wanted to say is just that this mindfulness has to be as in tune with the situation as quickly as this kind of yeah i'm off balance yeah that is i think what he tried to say we have that where i do my long retreats in sri lanka is this uh, is usually that part of the year there's a lot of rain and there's this footpath we have and so because the earth is very hard from all the walking it doesn't become muddy but because of the rain it has a little slime on top and it's extremely slippery one moment of not mindfulness you're fed on the ground the whole robes are dirty so you really want to have this <laughs> kind of thing in order to arrive at the meditation hall and always say look the teacher was not mindful look at his robes <laughs> here i found myself still thinking of the simile you mentioned this afternoon about the practice <coughs> 
being like kneading of the dough, the meditation practice, and the knowledge being like the yeast. And that came to the that 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 then brought me to the question: <coughs> How do you um, balance, protect your mind, your practice, functioning as a monk and as a professor in the academic world? Hmm. Very good question. Yeah, I have throughout giving absolute priority to the practice. That was the main thing. And so when I did that PhD on Satipatthana, I usually did uh, morning, like I would go begging in the early morning and then take my meal and until, until noontime it's time for study and the whole afternoon I practice. And then the situation changed when I went to Germany and I decided now I'm doing it differently. I'm three days of the week I'm practicing, four days of the week I'm studying. And now at present, I practice has become so strong I can't handle that anymore. I'm doing four days of the week. So four days of the week, every day I do, when I do retreat, I do 12 hours of sitting and a little bit of walking. I do very intense practice. Then I come out, I'm there with my parents, I do my academic work and then I drop it again. And, I, and, and this is what really keeps me going. And the thing is really that I think we need to give priority to the practice. And everything else then falls into place. And it's very cute, you know, we had a very big conference in June. Uh, it's the most important conference for Buddhist uh, scholars, the IAPS conference. And all the colleagues are kind of like, how come you write so much? And I say, I'm meditating. <laughs> and they were like, what? <laughs> but it is the fact. Because as I come out of my practice, the mind is so clear. And I know what I want to say. I just write these articles and they are finished. And someone else, or even like in situations, like for example now, I have done a whole week of intensive teaching in Hamburg. And now I've been teaching here. I would be totally unable to write an article. I will be at the same mental level as all my colleagues are all the time, which means you start writing and then you correct and you move around, you do again, and it takes such a long time. So for the ability to balance out these two aspects, uh, strong practice is needed. And uh, when, I, when I originally ordained, I only practiced for quite some time to get a basis. But eventually it's possible. And when you come to that level, both sides benefit. But the thing is really to give uh, priority to the practice, to make this the number one thing in our life, because we are all going to die. And at that time, the question is, what did I do with my life? And that's not the question, did I become a professor or not, how many friends I got, and blah, blah, blah. The question is, how much did I develop myself? And that thing, having that in front and saying every day, like, am I getting there or not? That gives the, that that sets priorities very clear, and then life becomes very easy. Happily dancing with things. You mentioned at the time, at the time when you were dying, you would say, "What did you do with your life?" And I have to ask. A, a, a blunt question that is maybe naive, but I have to ask it. Suppose that you spent your whole life each week four days practice and three days 
writing, doing your thing, and you look back on your life, why is it that you wouldn't say, I only had three-sevenths of a life? I only had, I only had three-sevenths of a life because, uh, in other words, could you explain to me how your four days of practice is rewarding and, and full of life more than but or But brother, equal. this is the most meaningful I, thing to do I, to meditate. It's I, fun. I, I, I love it. Well, that, that, that's why I said I, maybe I'm being naive. I love maybe it. Maybe I come out naive. of 12 hours of meditation. Okay. The first thing goes like, wow. Okay, <laughs> please explain that to me. The joy, the happiness, the happiness of concentration, the happiness of insight, nothing comes up to that. Forget about chogis. Nothing like that. Forget about sex, forget about music. It's just uncomparable. Excuse me? Probably thought, you know, seven days a week. And, and we look at him and we say he was such a creative person and he had such a, you know, Einstein. Mm -hmm. But if he, if he had meditated four days a week and, and worked three days a week, uh, I'm, I, I'm an analytical person. I say maybe he only had three-sevenths of creativity. I am more productive in this way than I would be if I would oh, okay. not meditate. So That's totally clear. That's what I'm saying. So Einstein might have been even more I don't know about Einstein. Know, I'm just talking about myself. <laughs> but theoretically or ideally, you know. Let's not be theoretical. Let's just be with the present situation. There is no other scholar that I know at present who is publishing as much as I do. I publish between 12 and articles per year and one monograph. There's nobody else I know who does that much. Thank you. Because of the practice. But if I'm free to decide what I like, I wouldn't be sitting here. You saw the first 20 minutes when you rang the bell. I thought, like, I don't want to talk now. <laughs> Four more minutes, one last question. Yes, please. In terms of being centered, um, in, in your body, um, I've noticed there are times that I have discomfort. And um, how do you deal with discomfort in your body? And does that where... Um, I guess I'm curious as to what that holding is about. I have a lot of pain in one yeah. of my hips. And um, is there a way to um, deal with it skillfully? Pain is one of the most powerful objects of meditation. I have a lot of pain also. I have a spinal problem, and sometimes when the two fellows come together, it's excruciating. I can't sleep. Extremely painful. Wonderful meditation. <laughs> Just being aware of the pain, not doing anything about it, not my pain, not I'm in pain, just pain. Very strong object, get easily concentrated, not easily get sidetracked, 
And a lot of freedom in my relation to this body comes out of that. So, I'd almost say I wish you a lot of pain because you will have wonderful, powerful meditation. I don't wish you the pain that I have, but it's a very powerful stuff. Just the thing of staying aware without reacting is everything that's required. It's a beautiful simile, the Salva Sutta in the, in the Samyutta Nikaya. The discourse on the arrow. Distinguishment between the situation of pain by an experienced meditator and by somebody who does not meditate. So the experienced meditator feels the pain. He or she knows it's painful, but doesn't react. One arrow. The uncultivated person, the one who doesn't meditate, Oh, it's so painful. Oh my God, what's going to happen? I'm sick. Who's going to look after me? How am I going to do? Whole two arrows, three arrows, four arrows. Chum, 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 chum. That's the whole thing. That one error we can't avoid, but the errors we can, the others we can. And pain is the time when we are learning that. Do you also do you meditate four days in a row? Or, yeah. And then three days. Yeah, working? yeah. I, I know I'm doing Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I need that because after three days of academic work, the first day in the morning, it's, the mind is still running. And I found, like, I like to sit for a long time. So what I do, I just sit and I just let the mind run. Mm-hmm. No, no use to the, hey, stay there, stay there, it's useless. I, I just let it run for a little while. And after some time, it quietly comes back and settles down, and then I go. Mm-hmm. And I do the practice. Okay. So I need that transition. Mm-hmm. And also the Thursday morning when I come out, I'm a little, like, I've, I've learned, don't reply to emails on Thursday morning. <laughs> Because I'm still like, <laughs> so we are there at nine o'clock. Thanks to all of you for your attention, for your comments, for your questions. I really rejoice in our meeting. I wish all of you well. May all of you be well, happy, healthy, and may all of you progress on this wonderful path to liberation liberation of the mind from all defilements, protecting ourselves, protecting others. Thank you.